Let's begin this morning with prayer. Lord God, on this last Sunday of the Easter season, we thank you for the fact and future hope of resurrection. We ask forgiveness for when we have not lived as people with new life, but as we look forward to the celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you empower us to live and perceive life as the new creations that we are so that we will make the most of every opportunity to love and do justice. We ask this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. Amen. Today is our last message from 2 Samuel 13, and our second to the last message in the series. And we're going to take a look at the final character of this particular story, King David. He, like Tamar, Amnon and Absalom is responding in grief to this tragic situation. But like the other men in this story, his grief response is not entirely healthy. I think that makes King David more relatable for us today. David is described as a man after God's own heart, but when he is hit with this tragic grief, we see him acting uncharacteristically, differently than he normally behaves. I can relate to that. It's hard to be normal when something abnormal comes into my life, whether a personal tragedy or a global pandemic. So while grief is a normal part of existence, the situations that may cause me to grieve are aberrations to my life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14 says, Christians do not grieve like the rest of the world who has no hope because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. As I said, humans naturally grieve death and loss, but hope in grief is possible. And to grieve with hope, I have to believe in the resurrection. That hope in a sure future life is what keeps me together when my current life is messed up. So let's read 2 Samuel 13, 20-21 and 30-39. Her brother Absalom said to her, that's Tamar, Has your brother Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. When King David heard about all these things, he was furious. Verse 30. While they were on their way, a report reached David. Absalom struck down all the king's sons, not even one of them Survived. And remember, this is two years later. In response, the king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shemiah, spoke up. My lord must not think that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, because only Amnon is dead. In fact, Absalom has planned this ever since the day Amnon disgraced his sister Tamar. So now, my lord, the king, don't take seriously the report that says all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. When the young man who was standing watch looked up, there were many people coming from the road west of him on the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, look, the king's sons have come. It's exactly like your servant said. Just as he finished speaking, the king's sons entered and wept loudly. Then the king and all his servants also wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled 
and went to Tamai, son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom had fled to Geshur and had been there three years, King David longed to go to Absalom, for David had finished grieving over Amnon's death. One of the easier things to see in this passage is King David's range and expression of emotions. You know, to be aware of and not afraid to express one's emotions, that's healthy. It doesn't make a person unmanly or weak. A strong person, male or female, shows their strength not just in physicality, but also in mental and emotional strength and expression. So King David expresses emotions, and that's good. But grief sometimes affects people in such a way that we don't know what to do with the emotions that we have. I think that this is the situation we find David is in. He's in an unusually tragic and personal situation, and his responses become uncharacteristic for him. See, under normal circumstances, David is a person of decisive action, a person of conviction. But under the emotional weight of his grief, he becomes passive. He's feeling, but he's not doing or being. And emotions should not, actually emotions should motivate us, not paralyze us. Now the first emotion we see from David is anger. Verse 21 says that when he hears about all these things, that is over the whole situation, Tamar's disgrace, Amnon being a rapist, Absalom hiding Tamar away. When he hears about all these things, he was furious. It's actually two words there, an intensifier, exceedingly, and angry, which literally means he was glowing with fire. David is red in the face mad. Now in the classic five stages of grief, anger is number two. Not all anger comes as a result of grief, but all grief does have an anger component. And so in his grief, King David is mad. And what does he do with his rage? Nothing. Now, we went over this last week. Everyone's keeping silent. Amnon is not talking. Absalom is not talking. Tamar is being prevented from talking. And so no witness testimony means no justice for Tamar. But that is just wrong. David is the king. His job, his very duty, is to mete out justice for the people. As the king, he can compel people to speak, but he doesn't do that. David is angry, but he's not being righteous. And anger should be righteous. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So it's not a sin to be angry, but I need to righteously and quickly Take care of the cause of the anger. I personally am not an explosive anger type of person. I've never hit someone in anger or put my fist into a wall. And I guess maybe I'm more like Absalom in that I'm more likely to sit silently and stew. But neither sitting in silence nor blowing up at someone ever takes care of the problem. I've learned that I can't just feel anger. I need to do rightly and express it. And that's especially important in my most intimate relationships. In Matthew chapter 21, and in fact all the gospel writers mention this story, 
Jesus comes into Jerusalem as king, riding on a donkey. And he goes to the temple. There he sees money changers and people selling them, selling, and all of the people there are stealing. And Jesus, in his righteous anger, kicks them all out, returning the temple of God to a place where people can pray. So emotions should motivate, not paralyze. David, in his anger, is passive. Jesus, in his anger, brings people closer to God. So what do I do with my anger? You know, some people lash out and hurt others. Some people hold it in, becoming a boiling pot of bitterness, waiting to explode and defile many. But what I should do is channel my anger to righteous actions. Now, my examples may not be your life examples, but... If I'm angry with my wife, I need to go and talk to her about it so our relationship will be healed. I've had people come to me, not necessarily in anger, but at least disturbed by something I may have said or a choice I made as pastor. I actually appreciate it when people come to me, you know, not to criticize me, but to make sure that we understand each other and we're still good, even though we might disagree. You know, as Christians, there are some beliefs which we absolutely must share and be like-minded about. But as people, you don't have to agree with me on everything in order to be my friend. And certainly not to attend the church I pastor. Those differences of opinion could cause heated debate. COVID-19 was and is a train wreck for how we used to do some things in local churches. And how we get through this is a matter of strong opinion. But if we are working actively toward righteousness, even if the situation makes us angry, we can move forward together to do God's kingdom work. Now, it's not easy when I'm highly emotional to think, now what is the right thing that I should be doing? Sometimes it is better to wait so that I don't do the unrighteous thing but I can't just sit paralyzed forever. Of course, anger is not the only emotion that can paralyze. Uh, So also can shock and sorrow paralyze. In more recent classifications of the stages of grief, the first stage is shock. And I think that's what King David feels when he hears that all his sons have been killed by Absalom. They actually haven't all been killed, only Amnon, But the first news through the door is that everyone is dead. And this brings David low. He stands up from his throne, so he's starting out strong. He tears his clothing, giving the public display of grief and call for support. And then he goes down to the ground. This is the same position he was in when his baby was dying. Only this time, David is not said to be praying. He's just on the ground, like defeated. All the servants respond to David's grief by also tearing their clothes. But then it says they just stand there. You know, emotions should motivate, not paralyze. David's situation reminds me of when I was in my 20s and a friend of mine died. I had been asked to be the pastor heading up the pre-funeral viewing. I was pretty solid throughout that whole evening. But as soon as all the people left and it was just me and a couple of members of the family... I literally fell to the floor crying. Now, I may not remember all this correctly, but I only recall my friend's mom 
coming to cry with me. I don't think anybody else that was there actually knew what to do because me falling down and weeping like that was totally unexpected for me and everybody else. But in David's case, one man, Jonadab, the shrewd nephew of King David, the one who was in on this mess in the beginning, putting the sinful idea of rape into Amnon's mind in the first place, realizes what has probably happened. His small consolation to the king is, Absalom probably only killed Amnon. He's been wanting to do that for two years. And then the rest of David's children show up, and together they all weep very bitterly. You know, there are times when we all do, and in fact we need to do, is weep. Charlie Peacock has a song called Now is the Time for Tears that has a line that says, Cry with me, don't try and fix me, friend. That's how you comfort me. I think that's a true statement. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so together, all David's remaining children and his servants cried out loudly. But the text doesn't say what specifically they are crying about. You know, Maybe they're crying over the death of their brother. Maybe they're just crying because they've just seen something horrific. Maybe they're in shock from seeing the brother kill brother and feeling like they barely escaped with their lives. But I do know what they are not crying about. They're not crying about the rape of their sister Tamar. Because if they were crying about Tamar being raped, they would have done that two years prior. Their weeping is emotional, but it's not healing the truly injured person, Tamar. And weeping should be a remedy. Now, the shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35, Jesus wept. And what did Jesus do after he wept? He raised the dead. Yes, sometimes I do need to cry or wail because that's the emotion, but I don't weep forever. When I'm done weeping, I heal. Not just myself, but others. It goes back to what I said four weeks ago. My grief can't remain internally focused, but it has to move outward to comfort others. Emotions should motivate, not paralyze. Anger should be righteous, and weeping should be a remedy. And the final emotions we see from King David are mourning and longing. David mourns for his son Absalom, the one who is still alive. David also does his grieving period for Amnon, but he finishes grieving for Amnon. For Absalom, David mourns every day for three years. He's in the depression stage of grief. See, Absalom fled to another kingdom. He put himself in self-imposed exile for three years to avoid perhaps the death penalty. And David longs to go to his son, but he doesn't. So it feels like he's lost two sons. His mourning ends for Amnon, but it's never ending for Absalom. And David is again frozen. And emotions should motivate, not paralyze. I think of all the emotions we've talked about today in the stages of grief, depression may be the one most likely to paralyze someone. But not moving, not acting in depression is one of the things that keeps people in depression. I'm so glad right now that so many people are out walking 
usually with family members during the pandemic. Exercise and social interaction help us work through depression. It releases endorphins in our bodies. It takes our minds off our worries and helps us gain confidence. The Bible would call this redeeming the time. And mourning should be redeeming. In Luke 19, 41 through 44, again, Jesus mourns over the people of Jerusalem. And when he is done mourning, he goes to the city to give his life to redeem all people from our sins. When Jesus mourned, he brought salvation. So Jesus' mourning is redeeming. Now, some grief comes of my own making. I make a bad choice and then I have to live with the consequences. Other tragedy comes through no fault of my own. Nobody injects themselves with cancer or coronavirus. We don't make it a goal to give ourselves a stroke, heart attack, or dementia. And those things are tough and cause us to mourn. I want to tell you about Pam. She's a member of our congregation who's been fighting cancer for years now. Pam doesn't like having cancer. I've been with her at the hospital a few times. And it doesn't matter who's there, her family, the nurses, the doctors, Pam at some point tells those people something good about Jesus in her life. Pam goes out for walks nearly every day and takes pictures of beautiful things in nature and posts them to encourage people. She's redeeming her time, and mourning should be redeeming. Okay, you say, that's great, Pastor Paul. Emotions should motivate, not paralyze. Anger should be righteous. Weeping should be a remedy. Mourning should be redeeming. How do I do it? So I want to leave you today with a very practical way to get started. And it's something that can help us all channel our emotions into positive actions, regardless of if we're grieving or not. In the sermon notes, linked in the video, is a form of prayer called the Prayer of Examine. Ignatius of Loyola put together the original Prayer of Examine, and it's designed to be done at the end of the day to invite the Spirit of God to help us evaluate our situations, emotions, and actions during that day. But it could also be done right after an incident to figure out, okay, what just happened? But here's one thing that I really like about the prayer. No matter the form, it always ends with, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do tomorrow? Not what am I going to feel, or what, am I, what do I want someone else to do Those are all things outside of my control. The prayer helps us move from emotional response to positive action. What does God want me to do tomorrow? I encourage everyone this week to try practicing each day the prayer of examine. You can use the sermon notes as a guide. There are are two versions I found on the YouVersion Bible app that you might want to use. Uh, You can just look it up online. And my favorite version is an app, and it's available for the iPhone or Android, and it's called Reimagining the Examine. So let's do this together this week. Let's end our time in prayer from Psalm 31. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. 
Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your namesake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. The course of my life is in your power. So rescue me from the power of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me by your faithful love. Amen.